Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Samantha Koenig, part four in our Israel Keys series. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. about her safety. The search continues tonight for a teenager kidnapped from her job at a coffee stand. We learned a few minutes ago that the family of Samantha Koning is offering a $12,500 reward for information leading to her whereabouts. And this weekend, family and friends plan to post thousands of more flyers around Anchorage as they intensify their search for the missing 18-year-old. Detectives now say a surveillance camera posted above the entrance to the Common Grounds Espresso Hut on Tudor and Fairbanks shows an armed man abducting Koning on Wednesday night. Police say the two left the area on foot and Koning's family has not heard from her since. On February 1st, 2012, Samantha Koenig, an 18-year-old barista from Anchorage, Alaska, disappeared from the Common Grounds Espresso Coffee Stand, located on East Tudor Road, situated near a Home Depot, Dairy Queen, and an IHOP restaurant. On the night of her disappearance, she was working alone, which was typical at the Common Grounds Coffee Stand, and it was close to closing time at about 8 o'clock p.m., Sunset had been at 5.06 p.m., and it was already dark as the young barista performed her closing duties. Samantha, or Sam, as she was affectionately known, was cleaning up and preparing to end her shift when she was startled by a walk-up customer who ordered an Americano coffee. It was about 7.55 p.m. At 7.45 p.m., Sam's live-in boyfriend, Dwayne Tortellini, requested to leave work early to pick Sam up. He was a chef at the Sweet 100, a fine dining steakhouse less than two miles from where Sam worked. His supervisor approved as long as Dwayne finished cleaning the kitchen first. He arrived at Common Grounds at 8.15 p.m. to find the coffee stand completely dark and empty. He peered inside through the service window, but there was no evidence of Sam or where she might have gone. Nothing looked out of sorts to Dwayne. He called and texted her several times, but she was not responding. Reluctantly, he returned to work to finish his shift. After arriving home shortly before midnight and not finding Sam home, Dwayne became worried. James Koenig, Sam's dad, tried to calm him down by providing a plausible scenario. Maybe Sam was upset and went to a friend's house to calm down. After midnight, Dwayne received a strange text message from Sam. It read, I'm going to my friend's house for a few days. Tell my dad I love him. You won't hear from me until I come home. Dwayne instantly knew something was wrong. 
Sam and James had an extremely close relationship and she would have never passed a message through him to her dad. She would have called him herself. Dwayne remained awake, anxious, and worried about Sam. Sometime between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., he heard a car door outside. Thinking it was Sam, he walked out onto the porch to find a figure clad in all black, wearing a ski mask and gloves standing there. Dwayne couldn't see the knife that the dark figure grasped in his hand in the dark. The two watched each other for a reaction, and as Dwayne ran into the house to get James, the dark figure disappeared. When James and Dwayne came out, the dark figure was nowhere to be found. The following morning, Michelle Robbins, co-owner of the Common Grounds coffee stand, received a report from the shop's opening barista, Melanie Ornelas, that Sam had not properly closed down the stand. Michelle wasn't initially worried, but when she received a call from James, Sam's father, Michelle and her husband went to the video footage to determine what had happened. What they saw on the video footage would be spine chilling prompting the couple to call the police immediately. Something terrible had happened to Samantha Koenig. On the night of February 1st of 2012, serial killer Israel Keys had been scoping out several coffee stands in Anchorage and found the Common Grounds coffee stand on Tudor Road to be particularly appealing due to closing later than most others. He had cased the coffee stand several times, parking in the Home Depot parking lot across the street from the coffee stand and walking past the coffee stand around closing time to gauge the number of customers and employees and found that it was generally quiet. Heavy snowfall had resulted in large snow berms being built around the coffee stand, adding some additional concealment from the heavy traffic of Tudor Road. On the night of February 1st, Keys parked in the Home Depot parking lot across from the coffee stand and watched it for several minutes. A construction business owner, he had stripped his white 2004 Chevy Silverado, a common vehicle in the rough snowy terrain of Alaska. It allowed him to blend in nicely. Keyes would later confess to almost a decade of murders, and although not much evidence would be provided to support his claim, his methods up to now had been meticulous and extremely calculated. That day, Keyes was breaking his own rules in more ways than one. Typically, Keyes avoided hunting in his own town of Anchorage, Alaska. That's what he was doing, hunting. He was purported to preposition kill kits throughout the nation and was said to fly and then drive throughout the nation seeking opportunities. His method of indiscriminate targeting of his victims made it almost impossible for authorities to tie his crimes together, allowing the elusive Keys to continue his rampage for years undetected. Keys never targeted people, he targeted locations. Typically, locations that were isolated, where he could target some disadvantaged person, preferably someone small and light, but he wasn't picky. It didn't matter to Keys if it were men or women, he was bisexual. If they entered his trap, he would move in like a tarantula securing a fly in its web. With the police scanner earbud in his ear, all dark clothing and a mask and glasses concealing his face, Keyes approached the coffee stand at 7.55 p.m., five minutes from closing, and startled the barista when he ordered an Americano coffee. According to the author of the book, Devil in the Darkness, J.T. Hunter states that Keyes didn't have a plan that night. He was scheduled to leave on a flight to Houston, Texas the next morning, and then drive to New Orleans to go on a family cruise for several weeks. But instead of preparing for his cruise, Keyes was using the few hours before his cruise to abduct Samantha Connick. With their hands raised as he brandished a 22 Taurus and ordered her to turn the lights off, this is just a robbery, he said, as he took control of his environment. Keyes climbed into the coffee stand through the service window. The next morning, Michelle's husband would share the video of what happened with Alaska PD. Sam had complied. She was terrified. 
She could have hit the alarm by the light switch, but fear prevented her from thinking clearly. She was being robbed. Sam gained her bearings. My father will be here soon to pick me up, she lied as he zip-tied her hands behind her back. The faster he got what he wanted and left, the sooner she would be safe, she thought. There's cameras here, and the register has an alarm. There really isn't much money. Keys was unfazed. Where's your car, he asked her as he grabbed a handful of napkins. My boyfriend has it, she responded. Keys had a dilemma. Another rule he had was to never put a victim in his own vehicle. But Sam was having an effect on Keys. JT Hunter would later write in Devil in the Darkness. I kind of lost control, I guess you could say. I was feeling a little invincible. Against my better judgment, I just kept going with it, even though I had already told myself that if whoever was there didn't have a car, that I wasn't going to do anything more than rob them and tie them up. Keys was turned on by her passiveness and docile nature. Addicted to control, it was like a drug addict finding a secret stash of dope. He couldn't walk away. Slowly, he guided her outside, holding her close like two young lovers on a casual stroll. As they walked towards Key's truck parked across the street near the Home Depot, around 200 feet from the coffee stand, Sam made a break for it. She tried to run, but her hands were zip-tied behind her and the ground was icy and slippery, and Keyes caught her quickly, pushing his pistol into her ribs. He told her what would happen if she tried anything else. Although there were people milling around that evening, the couple didn't look out of place. Sam had been coerced to comply, and so even with people around, she remained compliant. When they got to Key's truck, he helped her in, sat her in the front seat. He asked her about her debit card and her cell phone. She had left her cell phone in the coffee stand, and the debit card she shared with her boyfriend was in her truck, which her boyfriend had. Keys would then spin a yarn on how he was going to hold her for ransom. As soon as the ransom was paid, he would release her. This gave Sam hope that she might survive the ordeal after all. By 8.30 p.m., the truck was driving away from the coffee stand, turning onto Denali. Everything was quiet on the police scanner in his earbud. He was driving in the opposite direction that Dwayne would have been approaching from. Keys knew that Sam wasn't secured very well in the trunk and she could easily escape, so he made the decision to drive to Lynn Airy Park, where he removed tools from his backseat and made a makeshift bed using a tarp and some coats. He then placed Sam in the backseat and zip-tied her to the safety belt strap. They remained at Lynn Airy Park for about 20 minutes, making the adjustments. Keyes knew he needed a phone to send the ransom message. Initially, he thought he could buy a burner phone at the local Walmart, but after pulling into the parking lot, he began to have doubts. He could be caught on surveillance or Sam could try to escape. With no noise on the police scanner yet, Keyes made the decision to return to the common grounds to retrieve Sam's cell phone. It was 11 p.m. when Keyes returned to the coffee stand. He got her phone and her car keys and he cleaned up the scene, removing pieces of zip ties that he had left behind. When he got back to the truck, Sam was exactly as he had left her. Key sent Dwayne a text message and then removed the battery from the cell phone so it could not be tracked. I need to pee, Sam whispered to Keys from the back seat. Keys was annoyed. JT Hunter describes how Keys lit a cigar and offered to share the smoke with Sam. Did you go to school here? Sam asked, attempting to build rapport with Keys. Shut up, he replied, recognizing the tactic for what it was. He had seen it countless times. Where'd you get these cigars? She tried again. He again told her to shut up. This time, he was more menacing, and she took the hint. Keys drove Sam to Earthquake Park, a little past Lynn Airy Park, where he had secured her previously and allowed her to pee. He walked her out into the woods and let her do her business. When he got back to the car, 
He saw he had a low fuel light on, so he stopped at the Tesoro gas station on Northern Lights before heading to his house, which was located on a dead-end street nestled in between Linary Park and Northgate Park. James Koenig was a third-generation Alaskan. His dad was a plumber, and his mother was a bus driver. After high school, James worked in the air and ground freight industry for like 20 years, and he eventually became an operations manager. But he had some medical issues, changed his job, and became a cook. And so at the time of Samantha's abduction, he was working as a cook for the Indian House restaurant, which was about 15 minutes outside of Anchorage. That's also where he met Samantha's mom. Her name is Darlene. Samantha was born on August 30th, 1993, several months before their wedding. So it looks like Darlene got pregnant. Then James decided, well, let's get married. First few years of Samantha's life, that was really good for them. But eventually they started kind of falling apart a little bit. After their divorce, James is the one who ended up with full custody of Samantha. And as he took over custody, their relationship grew stronger and closer together. Samantha's described as being extremely energetic. She had a, like a magnetic personality. People really, really were attracted to her, but she was kind of tomboyish because she was raised by her dad, but she was a good kid. Yeah. And she was really excited when she got the job at the coffee stand, although her father didn't want her to work. He was worried about her and he was worried about her closing there late because the sun set at like five o'clock. So at the time of her disappearance, it had already been dark for three hours. Yeah. And Alaska, for anybody that's never been to Alaska, Alaska is kind of just a dark place anyways, kind of year round. As a matter of fact, they've got a higher percentage of people with depression due to the lack of vitamin D from the sun. And right. so that's kind of a normal, you know, for it to be on the darker side anyway. So that's why it had been dark for so long. I know that a lot of us probably think that that's early. In Houston, seven o'clock, the sun is still outside. <laughs> Yeah. In her situation, it was already dark and it had been pretty dark by the time that she was closing that coffee stand. Yeah. And the reason that I feel like it's important to talk about her situation at the time and and just to talk about her, not, not just for everybody to get to know Samantha, but also to understand how Samantha, I feel like, plays a very pivotal role in the capture of Israel Keys who's alleged to be a meticulous serial killer. Samantha, actually, she grew up in the area. She went to school in the area. So she actually went to West High School and Avell High School there in the local area. And prior to getting a job and working as a barista, she had worked at Subway and she had worked at House of Harley. And so, like you said, she was excited to get that job. And she was known to everybody to love animals. She loved fishing with her papa, playing music. She liked photography, um, writing music and poetry and um, camping, playing Call of Duty. That's just something that she liked to do. Her father also got her a, um, a pit bull puppy. And as soon as he got her a pit bull puppy, she fell in love with animals and she wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah. yeah. And she actually had talked about at one point of joining the Navy she had her sights on on building a career that allowed for her to go places and do more. And like anybody, she experienced something. She was young. You have to remember that that Samantha was young. 
her dad and her boyfriend. So she actually lived with both her dad and her boyfriend. They lived in the same place. They all lived together. And there was some things going on in that house as well. Because when, when the you say po- that house, what do you mean by that house? The house that they all shared, Samantha oh. and her dad and, and her boyfriend. Because when the police were going to their house and trying to question them at different points in time, there was a couple times where Dwayne wasn't letting them inside and they thought it was kind of weird. Like, why are you acting like that? And it was due to what was in the house. So there was a little bit of drug dealing going on. So, you know, Samantha was exposed to a lot. Dwayne got kicked out of his house for drinking too much. And so when Dwayne got kicked out of his house, Samantha begged her dad to let Dwayne come stay with them. And her dad was against it at first. And he was like, no, no, there's no way. But she eventually convinced him because she had him wrapped around her little finger. Like most girls have their dads wrapped (laughs) around their finger. It's a skill. Yeah, it's a a skill. They learned at a young age. But there was one condition, which was he had to control his drinking. And so when he moved in with James and with Samantha, that was one of the things that he did was he stopped drinking as much as he was drinking from before. Obviously, there was some some drug stuff going on in the house. And of course, whenever someone goes missing, the boyfriend or the husband is always the number one person of interest. But they quickly ruled him out because he had a strong alibi. He was at work. It could be proven where he was. And afterwards, he went straight home to James and he told James, hey, she's still missing. The next person of interest was Christopher Bird, known by his rap name, White Tyson. And Christopher Bird was a little bit of a troublemaker. And at the time that Samantha went missing, she had a restraining order out against Christopher because of the sexual assault, which we later found out may had not have been a, a true sexual assault. So the public charged by James, because James thought that it had to be, it looked to them in the video like someone that knew Samantha had abducted her. So James was like, it's somebody she knew and it could only be Chris. And so the public around Anchorage targeted Christopher and his mom. He ended up getting kicked out of barber school. He got all kinds of, of drama because everyone thought he did it. And he kept saying, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. He eventually had to leave Anchorage. It was that much hate coming at him from the community uh, before they were actually able to capture the true person who abducted her. If you haven't checked out the video, so so what ends up happening, obviously, that we know of is that when Samantha's dad contacts the owners of the place where she worked, they were out of town. They were actually out of state on vacation at the time. And they decided to go back and look at the footage because obviously they've got an employee who went missing. And so they just want to see if there's any way that that they can help. But if you're able to go check out the footage, I definitely encourage you to do so because something that you'll see that I picked up on is that initially when he approaches, he doesn't point the gun right away. She actually makes his coffee and everything before he ever even pulls the firearm out. When he initially walks up, she doesn't raise her hands. She greets him like he's another customer. I don't know that you'd really say that that she knew who he was or if she was just responding to him like he was any customer, but she definitely wasn't surprised or um, scared or anything of that nature. So she starts making the coffee. And something that you see, though, in the video is that Israel Keys becomes uncomfortable when there's a car that comes into the frame who can possibly see what he's doing. 
And this occurs after he has pulled the firearm out. And it is around that time where you see the movement of that vehicle where he jumps through the window. So that vehicle was sitting there and the occupant of that vehicle was watching him. And he was smoking a cigarette. And he was watching to see what he was doing. And so he was ordering his coffee and he was waiting for him to lose interest. And so when he drove away is when Keys jumped in through the window. So, yeah, you were right. You know, just something to watch. And then something else that you don't see in the video that I just kind of want for you to picture is the fact that not only is it dark, but there's lots of snow. And so if you live anywhere where there's snow in a parking lot, what they do is when they're shoveling it, they shovel it all into this huge pile that you can't see over and like a mountain of snow. And it just so happened that this mountain of snow was in an area where it made it hard for you to see the coffee stand from the main road. So what was taking place was also covered from there until they walked far enough to be away from wherever that snow mound was. Now, when Keys abducts Sam and he gets her in the car, it doesn't look like he knows what he had planned to do with her. He puts her in the front seat because he has tools in the back seat. He seatbelts her in and then he starts driving around town. What I didn't know before and what I do know now is that Keys' house is situated in between those two parks that he went to. And so he stopped at the first park to get her situated into the back seat so that he can continue to drive around town without fear of her jumping out of the car and running. He also covers her up with a tarp and some coat, so now she's kind of hidden. He's trying to figure out how he's going to communicate with the family on his ransom because he's still pretty adamant about doing his ransom, which is kind of ironic because he goes into this with no plan. Right. Not a meticulous plan. No, not he's not planning anything at all. And he's also knows that he's getting ready to leave the next day on a cruise. So he leaves the stand, leaving her cell phone, knowing her cell phone is in the stand. He leaves and he drives away. And as he's trying to figure out, well, how am I? I can't call them from my cell phone. I need a cell phone. I can go buy one. But what if I get caught on the surveillance in Walmart? I'm going back to the coffee stand to get the cell phone, her cell phone. So he goes back. Which was also not smart. When Sam tries to build rapport with him, when she starts talking to him, hey, so did you go to school here? This reminds me of the very first girl that he abducted when he was a teenager. The one that he kidnapped or or abducted when she was floating on the river and she was able to build rapport with him. And she was able to say, oh, you're handsome and I would have dated you. And then he ends up letting her go. This is an incident that he learns from. He does an after action review and it's like, you know, I, I wasn't tough enough. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't direct. And I let her go and he regretted it. And so you can see that he knows she's trying to build rapport and he's shutting it down. He's like, don't ask me. Don't, don't shut up. Don't talk to me. Because he knows once you get through his his veneer that there's a, the opportunity for that person to talk him out of what he's about to do. And he doesn't want to allow that chink in his armor to happen. So he shuts her down. When Keys gets to his house, his living girlfriend is home and awake and his daughter is asleep. He has prepared the shed for such an occasion with two heaters running for warmth and a 9 by 12 tarp covering the floor. 
Keys blindfolds Sam as he leads her to the shed. In the shed, he ties a noose around her neck and refastens her zip tie restraints in front of her so that she can use the five-gallon bucket as a toilet that he's left for her and so that she can also smoke. He instructs her that he has to run some errands that are associated with her ransom and reminds her that he'll be monitoring his scanner in case she chooses to create a disturbance. He asks for her address so that he can go and retrieve the debit card, which she gives him. Keys prints the directions to her home on MapQuest and asks Sam to point out exactly where her truck will be parked. Keys climbs into his girlfriend's Nissan Xterra SUV and heads out to retrieve the debit card. By 3 a.m., Keys is at Sam's house and while searching for the debit card, he hears a door open and comes face to face with Dwayne. Can I help you, Dwayne asks, as Keys stares Dwayne down, preparing to respond, a knife clasped in his hand. As Dwayne runs back into the house, Keys turns and runs away, disappearing down the road where he left his SUV before James and Dwayne know what has happened. When Keyes returns home, his girlfriend is asleep. He quietly enters her room and retrieves a purple handkerchief and puts on a headlamp. He pours himself a glass of wine and then goes to the shed. When Keyes enters the shed, it is completely dark. The only light is the light coming from the headlamp. Sam is sitting on the five-gallon bucket exactly where Keyes has left her. Is everything okay, she asks, curious to know if the ransom plot is going as planned. Did you get hold of my dad? Yeah, everything's fine, he lies. Keys orders her to lie down on the mat on her stomach, which she does. He reconfigures the ropes to secure her to the ground, tying her hands and legs so that they are pinned to the ground. Please don't rape me, she pleads with Keys. You knew this was coming, he responds coldly. He gags her with the handkerchief and grabs a 36-inch zip tie, wrapping it around her throat, tightening it enough so that she can feel it constricting, but not enough to cut off her flow of oxygen. If I pull this, there's no going back, he instructs her, indicating the constriction of the zip tie. Keys is intoxicated. He pulls out a three-inch knife and begins cutting her clothes from her body. When he is done removing her clothing, he stands back and admires his artwork. In the dimness of the dark shed, the only light comes from his headlamp. Each piece of clothing is placed into a black trash bag for burning later. He places KY jelly between Sam's legs and removes his clothes. He puts on a condom. He mounts her and violates her vaginally. Before climaxing, he stops. Sam believes the assault is over, but then he violates her anally. She begins screaming into her gag, but he pulls the zip tie tighter around her throat and orders her to be quiet. When he is done, he stands up. Are you going to kill me? She asks. Keys does not respond to her question. She offers to give him oral sex, searching for some way to keep him interested in keeping her alive, but he turns down the offer. Without warning, Keys pulls the end of the zip tie, straddling her, pulling with so much force that it lifts her head and chest off the floor. When she has been still for a few moments, he stabs her in the back with a knife to make certain that she isn't playing dead and then ties a nylon rope around her throat. He uses the rope to hang her from a shelf, keeping the front of her body elevated off the floor to maintain pressure on her neck. Keyes finished his wine and then went into the house to take a shower. After a shower, he woke up his daughter, fed the dogs, and packed for their trip. He then went back outside and cut Sam down, wrapped her in the mat and the tarp, and pushed her body into the lower cabinet of the shelf. He double-locked the shed and called a cab to take them to the airport. Thank you.
I don't know how much of this they could actually confirm from his story. I do know that when they took, they actually took the whole shed. So the, the shed's pretty small. It's not the kind of shed that you can put a lot of things in. It's like more of a shed where you like push a lawnmower and a couple of your, your lawn things in there. It's not the kind of shed where you can store a lot of things. So they loaded it up on a trailer and took it away to actually process it. And I know that they took a few of the board pieces where if in trying to corroborate his story, if they were trying to see if there was anything that had soaked up into the into the bottom of the shed, that could have been why they took some of those pieces. There's a couple of things that they took out of the shed as well to try to corroborate that story. So, yes, very gruesome account that he gives. The story that Keyes told Sam about her being held for ransom gave her hope that there was some type of happy ending at the end of this all because she becomes very compliant. That's why she asked about the ransom. Hey, is everything going okay? Is my dad going to get the money? She really believes that if he wants a ransom, that's really what his motive is. And it seems from all accounts, he's doing all the things that tie the situation to a ransom that it's what he is kind of positioning for, but he has no intentions of letting her go. So, I think when he sexually assaults her, I think she starts to realize that this is not just about a ransom. And so she asks, are you going to kill me? At that point, I think she's starting to realize that things are going a lot more sinister than she thought they would. Keys takes a lot of risk to go to the house to get the debit card. Definitely a moment where he could have been caught. When you take into account all of the risks that were taken and all the different things that, that occurred in Samantha's case, they're not risks of a meticulous person. You know, they're more on the spectrum of risk for a thief. And it's really careless. Everything he's doing is careless. Right. So later when Keyes tells the story about the couriers there are some similarities in the stories and in what can be proven where I feel like it's more telling about keys and that's the rummaging through the vehicle, the, you know, like that's petty thief stuff. That's not a meticulous mastermind who's been committing heinous crimes for years. So yeah, I feel like Samantha really played a big role in, in getting him caught. I really see Samantha as being a important piece of keys getting captured unbeknownst to her. And yeah. I feel like aside from what investigators could corroborate, we don't know how much of his story is actually accurate when he tells it. But for some of the pieces, I feel like there's some truth in like her trying to be witty enough to, she was a sarcastic person. Like her, her family and friends knew that she was like a sarcastic, funny person. And she was a tomboy. So she wasn't like this frail, preppy little girl. I can see that Samantha would have tried to outsmart him. Trying to, to make conversation to be like, you know, don't be an idiot. Like, I ain't going to tell on you. Do your thing. Go away. We'll both go our separate ways. So I could see that being her. So that doesn't surprise me at all. But something tells me they knew each other. And I say that because 
the way that their interaction was at the coffee stand. And also there's a couple comments that he made in some threads about the story. One was never publicly posted, but it's listed in the FBI documents. Keys went in and made this comment about basically like playing with somebody's emotions. And so it gave me the sense that the way he wrote it was this wasn't some random person. She had some kind of slighted. Yeah, he felt slighted. And so I feel like part of his story is about trying to appear that he was the one with the upper hand and he was the one in control and that kind of wanting everybody to see that. But I feel like those messages are telling of how he felt slighted from Samantha, in my opinion. And so Keys is a coffee drinker. And he He really likes coffee. And one of the things that's unique about Anchorage is that there's a lot of these small, mobile, tiny little coffee stands all throughout Anchorage, Alaska. And so where this place is located is within miles of his house. Right. Very close. Very close to his house. So it is very, very likely that he could have gone through there and had an interaction on some particular day driving through that coffee stand with Samantha. And guess what? It's by Home Depot. And guess where he bought his cheap little orange buckets? Home Depot. Home Depot. Yes. So to me, this is a coffee shop that he's been at before and several times. Sure. Yeah. That's a great point. I think it's important for people to understand why when you say things like he embellished or we can't corroborate his stories, one of the things that he says about Samantha is that she tried to get away twice. This is to create an illusion. He had taken her with him across the border from Alaska to the U.S., to the lower 48. And when she tried to get away in the desert, he caught her. And he said, hey, I must be losing my touch, he says. Keys is a manipulator. And so everything that he shares has a twist of information that only he is aware of. And so you never know if he's being completely honest or if he's embellishing or if he's telling a story. He does it very easily. Detective Monique Dahl was on her second day on the job when she was assigned the Samantha Connick case. With the footage from the Common Grounds coffee stand, they were able to trace Keys to the parking lot of the Home Depot. There, they saw Keys and Sam get into a white truck. When they ran the profile on the white truck through DMV records, they found 3,000 vehicles in Anchorage that fit the vehicle's description. They needed more. Over the next weeks, they worked on tracking down each owner of a white truck, but consistently hit dead ends. As in most investigations, Dwayne was questioned about Sam's disappearance. Did they have a fight? But his alibi was solid, as he had spent the night working and then was with James, Sam's father, throughout the night. Another person of interest was up-and-coming Anchorage rapper Christopher Bird, who went by the rap alias White Tyson. Sam had gotten a restraining order against Christopher in November of 2011 after she claims Christopher sexually assaulted her. Christopher denied the accusation and said that the sex had been consensual, but that she had not wanted her boyfriend to find out about them and had accused her of the assault. Although Christopher had a solid alibi, the media focused their anger on him, and he was soon getting death threats. Christopher, who was in barber school, was kicked out of school, forfeiting his deposit of $6,000. James, Sam's father, without another target, led a campaign of anger towards Christopher with the media. On February 10, 2012, a donated motorhome was parked near the Common Grounds coffee shop. It became the headquarters for the search for Sam. 
James Koenig would spend most of his waking hours here following tips relentlessly. James was sure that Sam knew her abductor. On February 11th, Keyes returned to New Orleans from his cruise. It was the same day that 1,000 people gathered in Town Square Park for a candlelight vigil for Samantha. The family was still holding out hope that Samantha was still alive. Hundreds of white and green balloons were released into the air in her memory. Green was Samantha's favorite color. By February 14th, Valentine's Day, donations for the reward fund had reached $60,000. On February 16th, Keyes headed to Dallas, Texas to rob a bank. He created a diversion by setting a home on fire in the town of Alito, Texas to distract the police and increase his chances of escaping. He also robbed a bank in Azle, Texas, another Texas small town, wearing a hard hat for disguise. Keyes returned to Anchorage three days later on February 19th. After Keyes' daughter went to school, Keyes began the task of disposing of Sam's remains. He had left her in the shed in the frigid Alaska temperatures while he was out of town, and now he found that he could not remove her remains from the shed without removing the doors and dismantling the entire unit of the shelf. Blood from her stab wound had leaked into the insulation of the cabinet floor, as well as the sleeping bag, the mat, and the tarp. He erected a table in the middle of the shed and placed Sam's body on the table. After thawing out Sam's body, he placed her on the table and then had sex with her corpse. He spent the 20th of February searching town for a Polaroid camera and film. On the 21st, he picked up his girlfriend from the airport and spent the next few days doing work-related tasks. He also picked up makeup from the local Walmart and a needle and some fishing line. He purchased a typewriter at a local Salvation Army and typed out a ransom note. On February 24th, Keyes woke up before dawn and took his girlfriend's car to Connors Bog Park, where he left a ransom note behind the picture of a missing dog named Albert. He then drove to Carr's grocery store and picked up a case of beer. But before leaving, he put the battery back into Sam's cell phone and sent a text to Dwayne, stating, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? Dwayne and James were at Golden Corral eating when Dwayne got the text. They both went to the park and once they found the note, they called the police, ensuring not to touch the note in case there were any fingerprints. Keyes couldn't hold back the anticipation to know whether his handiwork had paid off, and so he drove past the park, seeing the Alaska PD on site, he felt satisfied with his work. Sam's remains began decomposing in the shed, and soon Keyes became concerned that neighbors might complain about the smell. He had to do something. He considered burying her in a snowbank temporarily to help preserve the body until he could dispose of her remains more thoroughly, but knew there was too much exposure. Instead, he decided to cut the body into pieces and dispose of it in a frozen lake. On February 29th, Keyes accessed the ATM in Anchorage, withdrawing first $500 before midnight and then another $500 after midnight. He became upset when he noticed the balance was only $5,000 and not the $30,000 that he had asked for. He intended to increase the request by $10,000 to $40,000, but he'd wait until he got to Texas to do so. On March 6, 2012, a blog writer named Chelsea Hoffman disclosed that Sam had used heroin with her mother for a period of time and had engaged in consensual sex with Christopher Bird after she interviewed Christopher's mom, Tammy Counts. Samantha's half-brother would corroborate the details shared by Tammy with Chelsea's blog as Tammy worked to remove suspicion from her son who was being targeted by the media and the community. On that same day, Keith caught a flight to Las Vegas, Nevada as he made his way to his sister's wedding in Texas. He rented a white Ford Focus from Avis in Vegas and began the long drive to Dallas, Texas. On March 7th, around 10 p.m. at night, Keyes drove into North Arizona and withdrew money from Samantha's account with her debit card. 
At 11.30 p.m., he attempted to withdraw additional funds from the ATM in Lordsburg, New Mexico, but the transaction exceeded the daily limit and was declined. The feds were monitoring the account. They caught a break when the wide-angle ATM camera caught a shot of the rental vehicle. They saw the vehicle traveling towards I-10. On March 8th, the Alaska PD communicated to James that they believed Sam was still alive. It lifted their spirits. On March 9th, at 11.20 p.m., Keyes withdrew $480 in Houston, Texas, near Humble City, Texas. In Houston, Keyes went to the airport and swapped out the rental cars. Luckily for authorities, they gave him the same exact car in the same exact color. The FBI issued a bolo for a white 2012 Ford Focus. On March 11th, Keyes headed to Grand Prairie, Texas to attend his sister's wedding, which was scheduled for March 12th in Nacogdoches. At 11.30 p.m., he made another ATM withdrawal in Shepard, Texas, between Houston and Lufkin. Afterwards, he checked into the Quality Inn Suites in Lufkin, Texas. On March 13th, a Lufkin police patrol drove through the parking lot of Quality Inn Suites around 3.30 a.m. Keyes happened to be standing on the balcony and saw the vehicle slow down and stop near his rental car and then continued driving. At 7.30 a.m. that same morning, Texas Highway Patrol Corporal Brian Henry entered the parking lot of the Quality Inn Suites. After running the plates on the bolo'd vehicle and finding that it was a rental, he called the vehicle in. He was instructed to keep some distance and additional resources were sent to the hotel. When the police inquired about the vehicle, the front desk reported that a man by the name of Elijah Keyes had rented room 215 from 9 March through 13 March. At about 11.30 a.m., authorities watched as Keyes exited room 215 and after placing some items in his trunk, drove away in the white Ford Focus. Fifteen minutes later, the Texas Highway Patrolman pulled Keyes over and quickly identified that he was from Anchorage, Alaska. A quick search through his vehicle provided the police what they needed to arrest Keyes. They found a gun, dyed stain roll of bills from a bank robbery, a mask, and Samantha's debit card and her cell phone. Not meticulous. <laughs> Nothing meticulous about that. From the start of the investigation, they didn't have much to go on. They only had the description of the truck, and it was a common truck. That just wasn't very much to go off of. And not just that. It was a truck that he used for work. So he was a independent contractor, owned a little business called Keys Construction. And he had one of those um, things that's pretty common on trucks for contractors or people who use their trucks for business he had a rack so it's like a metal rack that goes around the back of the truck and he had removed that right when um he went there so that made the truck look so they're looking for a truck that doesn't have the rack on it then you're talking about a white pickup truck which is common right samantha's dad was manning the motorhome near the common grounds and every time he got a tip he would race out to go follow up on that tip. He was very hopeful that he was going to find his daughter alive and he didn't waste any time in in pursuing every tip. But obviously they were getting a lot of bogus tips. A lot of times people, when they're trying to remember things, they don't remember things accurately or, you know, they're trying to help and they're giving, well, I think, you know, I saw this or I think this might be important. And so they give that information. And so um, tips can be exhausting because there are, there are a lot of tips that come in. And when you're, you're trying to decipher whether something is a good tip or a bad tip, or if it even is related to the case at all, you know, that can be, that can be stressful. And her dad's wanting to find her. 
Yeah, and he said he was pretty frazzled from all the tips that he was chasing down. And just imagine the police. The police are doing the same thing. And things kind of start to blur together, you know, so. You know, when people talk about Keys and they put him on this pedestal as a serial killer, they talk about him being meticulous. But even in this environment, you see that he doesn't even have a plan on how to dispose of the body. Right. It's not until he's got to dispose of the body that he starts coming up with a strategy on how he's going to do it. He's still trying to figure out what he's going to do. I don't understand how his girlfriend isn't curious about what's going on in the shed. To me, that's it's very strange. And there has been some talk about um, she's somebody who has stayed out of the, um, during the course of the investigation, even though she did speak with police, she did have an attorney present, like when they came to the house, there's been discussion about whether or not she could have played a part in some of the things that Keys did. But there's never been anything that's been solid enough to tie her in as an additional party. Yeah. So. Part of Keys talking about Samantha trying to get away in the desert was he was trying to create an illusion that Samantha was alive and with him because he was using the debit card. And I think that he was trying to make it seem like she was with him as he was using the debit card. I think that's also part of the reason why they didn't just storm the room in room 215. Why they, when they found the car, they waited and they watched because they were waiting to see, is he with Samantha? Has he abducted her? And that's also part of the reason why I think they reached out to the family and they were like, we believe Samantha to be still be alive. There's hope. One thing that allows for, and, and actually is like a huge red flag for them to engage the FBI is when they believe that something has occurred where it's past state lines or where it's a federal crime, such as a banking crime. Right. So- they engaged them early on, which was great because the FBI also played a big role in capturing keys as well. Right, right. And I think the cops do a good job. They do some good police work in Texas. They they got the bolo out for the Ford Focus. They're all looking for it. They find it as they're patrolling and they're running plates. And when they find this car is rented, they're like, you know, it's something worth looking more into. And the other thing too is there's been some discussion about, you know, Keys being meticulous as to where he parked when he was near the coffee stand, how he walked from one street to another street before he crossed the street. So you didn't really know where he was coming from. It's funny to me to hear that. And then to see him on all of these cameras in the same car going to the ATMs with the card. So now they're connecting same guy, same outfit that he walks up to the ATM in and same car. And they see that again and again and again. So he never tried to park the vehicle far enough away to where it wasn't captured. Like, that's not meticulous. Not at all. As Israel Keys was extradited from Texas to Alaska, news that the responsible party for Samantha Koenig's disappearance had been captured. James, Sam's father, made it clear that Sam had no possible connection to Keys and the abduction had been completely random. Keys arrived in Alaska on March 26th and pled not guilty for using the stolen debit card. APD Chief Mark Muse says they think Israel Keys, a man arrested in Texas for allegedly using a stolen debit card, is involved in her abduction. Channel 2's Jason Lamb joins us now from outside the federal courthouse in Anchorage where that man, Israel Keys, faced a judge today. Jason, what did Keys have to say in court today? 
Well, Maria, Mike, nothing specifically related to the abduction of Samantha Koenig. He spoke very briefly, short phrases, yes, your honor, no, your honor, things like that. He did plead not guilty to the charge of access device fraud using that stolen debit card to try and get money. He sat in the courtroom today facing the judge as he read off that charge against him. The most we heard from Keyes was him explaining why he didn't have enough money for a lawyer, his voice quivering during that explanation. And police chief Mark New said in the strongest way we've heard so far that APD thinks Keyes is involved in Koenig's abduction and the U.S. Attorney's Office backed that up today. He received a public defender to represent him. On March 31st, while being interrogated, the truth about what had happened to Sam finally was revealed in Key's words. Keyes refused to share any details unless Detective Dahl was involved in the case, but he gave permission for the FBI to conduct a final search of his home and to confiscate the shed where Sam was murdered. On April 1st, Keyes described to the FBI how he had searched for a lake to dispose of Sam's remains. After searching several lakes, he settled on Matanuska Lake due to its depth. Three weeks after her death on February 21st, Keyes had used MapQuest directions to go to Matanuska Lake. It was pretty empty and he used a chainsaw to cut a hole in the ice and built a shack over the hole. He tested the depth of the water. It was about 40 feet, which disappointed him. He wanted it to be deeper. Covering the hole with a piece of plywood so it wouldn't freeze over the next day, he left. Keyes returned the next day with Sam's head and her arms and legs. Keyes removed the body parts from the 55-gallon bags and dunked them into the lake, attaching weights to ensure the parts sunk. After disposing of the body parts, Keyes lit a fire and fished for four to five hours before leaving. He returned the next day with Sam's torso and did the same exercise of building the shack, removing the torso, and dunking it into the lake and watched as it sunk. Again, he lit a fire and fished for several hours before covering the hole with the residual ice and snow. After returning home, he burned any tools and items that involved Sam's abduction to include the typewriter ribbon. He took a trailer of almost 500 pounds worth of material to dispose of at the local landfill. On April 2nd, the FBI's underwater search and evidence response team recovered Sam's remains from Matanuska Lake. Anchorage police announced today they found a body they believe to be Samantha Koenig's in Matanuska Lake out in the valley. Channel 2's Jason Lamb was there as investigators dove into the frigid waters this evening, and he now joins us live from the Common Grounds coffee stand where Samantha was abducted more than two months ago. Jason. Maria, the place that became so well known as the headquarters in the search for Samantha Koenig has tonight become a makeshift memorial. You can see all the flowers that people have left behind in memory of Samantha as news of her death spreads across town tonight. Earlier today, a forensic dive team discovered in Matanuska Lake when investigators believed to be the body of Samantha Koenig. Police say Koenig likely died within hours of her abduction back in February. Divers remained at Matanuska Lake into Monday night after scrambling several APD, FBI, and state trooper units earlier in the day when information was hard to come by. No, uh, not too much. Uh, we have information that's led us out here and uh, we're actively following them up. Once the remains had been recovered, the FBI made the call to James to let him know that Sam's body had been completely recovered. James made the decision to cremate his daughter's remains on April 8, 2012, Easter morning. 
That morning, before daybreak, James, family, and friends gathered to cremate the remains of Samantha and afterwards walked outside and watched the sunrise. As Keyes began to give up information, he did it in a very controlled manner. He demanded that Detective Dahl be part of the discussion. When asked why, he said, that's just the way that I am. Again, still being very manipulative. He also wanted her to know that she had caught the monster that she was looking for. He had been following the case in the news and in the media, and she had been the one that been, had been doing the majority of the investigation. It was her case. And so he wanted her to be present. He didn't want to divulge anything outside of his own pace. And as he was ready, he would share information. And when he felt comfortable that they weren't going to share all the grim details of what he had done because he didn't want people to know how devious and how dysfunctional he was, he decided that it was okay for him to let them know where the body and the remains were for Samantha. And that's why he gave them the location. Plus, he also said that you're going to find it on my computer because I only searched one lake on MapQuest. So once you get my computer, you're going to know where she is. So he was basically just giving them stuff that they could corroborate through forensics evidence on his computer. They found a lot of stuff on his computer, like going years back. So to think that there was only one thing that they could have found out from his computer, you know, just Samantha, there would have been other things as well. So, and they did find some other stuff that had to do with like missing persons cases that he was following and, and through the years, cause it's been a long time. They've, there's a lot of people that people have tried to connect Israel keys to that. They've found out wasn't Israel keys. Israel keys didn't have anything to do with it. So, right. The randomness of Samantha Connick's disappearance made her abduction terrifying for the community of Anchorage, Alaska and to the nation. In a world where we try to make sense of tragedy, Sam's abduction and murder didn't make sense to anyone. Keys had been slowly unraveling over the last year with reports from neighbors and people he worked with that indicated he was drinking heavily, his relationship was in turmoil, and his daughter had found him passed out. A knife stabbed into the coffee table, the couch and the curtains had been sliced open. A frantic panic call to Tammy, his ex-wife, from Keys' daughter, was downplayed by Keyes, who said that his daughter was just overreacting. Keyes admitted to being depressed. With his relationship falling apart and the long Alaska winters, he was making plans to relocate to the lower 48, what Alaskans refer to the portion of the U.S. below Canada. Maybe this is why he had chosen to target someone so close to home. This may be why a serial killer, who had previously been described as meticulous and calculated, suddenly became sloppy and impulsive. Maybe he was looking to be caught, or didn't care whether he was caught or not. Either way, Key's reign of terror was at an end, but the FBI still had a lot of work left to do to unravel the potential list of victims that Keyes was hinting he had a hand in killing, many of whom to this day still remain unsolved. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon 
leave a review, and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.